Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Now, if you're new to Faith Church or you're new to Christianity, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It really means in the beginning. And it's a foundational section of Scripture to explain to us God's love and mercy. Last week, we began this series in Genesis 12 with the call of Abram. We saw the faith of Abram in obeying God's command to go, but also the failure of Abram in Egypt. Now, Abram in Genesis 13 returns to the promised land. Abram and his lot nephew have been blessed by God, and so they make the decision to, to split up, to spread out in the land Abram gives Lot the choice. Which direction will he go? And he chooses to move toward Sodom. Abram has turned from his sin of chapter 12, and he finds renewed hope in the promises of God. And so I'm going to read just a couple of sections from these two chapters. First, let's jump in. And and after the two men part company, Abram and his nephew, go to chapter 13, verse 14. Genesis 13, verse Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. The promises of God continue to be proclaimed and expanded to Abram. And yet as we move into chapter 14, we find war in the land. The kings of the east, the great tyrants of the ancient world are are exacting their revenge and payment and tribute against the kings down near the Dead Sea, and war takes place for 13 years, for 12 years. They have been subject. In the 13th year, they rebel, and now we move into the 14th year. So let's read in chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading at verse 8. Genesis 14, verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Ketiloamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshel and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been captive, had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Ketiloamer and the kings allied with him, 
the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Let's bow as we ask God to bless us through the, his word. Father in heaven, we, we come hearing that you are a God of victory. And yet in many ways, Lord, we admit that we feel defeated, defeated by sin in our lives. And so, Lord, for those of us who follow Christ, give us the power by your Holy Spirit to defeat sin, to turn in repentance, to admit our failures, and respond by faith. Lord, to those who feel burdened by the, the crushing problems of the world, Lord, let them find hope and victory in you. And Lord, even today as the church around the world gathers in prayer for the persecuted church, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the far corners of the world who live under threat of persecution, the, the loss of life, their possessions taken because they have claimed the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for the protection of our brothers and sisters that the gospel would be heard clearly. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the way in which you have worked, not only in this century, but in the previous centuries throughout the history of the church, in raising up a faithful remnant to proclaim the gospel, men and women who will forsake everything for you and your name. And so, Lord, do that work in our hearts, in our lives. Even as we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, may we be willing to give up everything for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, if that means a call to go with the gospel to the nations, then send us now. If it means a, a willingness to boldly proclaim our faith here, even in the face of, of taunting, Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to announce the name of Jesus Christ. And so as we pray, as we come today, Father in heaven, I ask that you would speak to us by the power of your word. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm a sucker for those news stories that can basically be summarized as criminals do the dumbest things. There, a, a few years ago, there was a, a story of a, of a man, Paul Felix. He, he wants a better view of the night sky, so he climbs to the top of a Marshall's department store. And then he finds an unlocked door on the roof and just to take a look around, goes inside. Then he finds that there's a, an, an open chute that goes down to the ground floor of the, the marshals, and so he climbs down. Only to find that he's now not actually near any kind of entrance to marshals, but he's stuck in the wall between the cinder block and the drywall. So he tries to climb his way out and only slips and falls. Now, on Monday, when the employees returned to the store, they thought they'd heard something. But it wasn't until Tuesday that they actually figured out what was going on. And he, Paul, is rescued when the fire department comes and pries, the, pries him out of the wall. 
Now, he was charged, arrested, charged with burglary, with possession. And the newspaper headlines call it a rescue. But it doesn't feel very heroic. I mean, well, because Paul, Felix, isn't the most deserving of victims. And as we turn to Genesis 13 and 14, we find another rescue. More heroic because of the risk involved to Abram. But again, I find myself thinking about Lot, one of the dumbest guys here in Scripture. He's moved his way down not only close to Sodom in chapter 13, but all the way in to Sodom by chapter 14. And he really doesn't deserve a rescue. Chapter 13, actually, if we, if we had taken the time to read all of it, would have given us the warnings. So, so just look back there at a couple of verses with me. In chapter 13, verse 10, we're, we're told that when, when, when Abram and his nephew Lot are deciding which direction each of them will go, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan down toward the river was well watered like the garden of the Lord. I mean, this is like the garden of Eden itself, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. Then, then look at the note that the narrator gives us here, that Moses tells us about this decision at the end of verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you maybe have never read any parts of Genesis, but if you've heard those names, Sodom and Gomorrah, oh, you know what's coming. A fiery end in destruction by God. And, and the repetition will come come again in in verse 13, a warning that that now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And yet Lot's choice takes him down into this city. Because as he looked up, it looked like from the outside, this would have everything he would want. Like Eve in the Garden of Eden, she looks at the, the fruit but doesn't listen to the warnings or commands of God and takes it. And so Lot moves himself in to Sodom. John Calvin, the great reformer from, from 500 years ago, says, says, Lot fancied he was dwelling in paradise, but he nearly plunged himself into the pits of hell. It looks like paradise, but it is really hell. But yet, the, even there in chapter 13, as we see the foolishness of of Lot, we see the continued blessing of God given to Abram. Look at, look at verse 14 of chapter 13, where the Lord tells Abram to, to, to look, look in all directions to see the land that will be given to Abram and to his offspring. And then notice the promise there at the end of verse 15, the final word in my translation, all the land you see I will give you, give to you and your offspring forever. This is a promise that will last forever. There's no need to check the fine print to see if the expiration date has passed. This is still usable. This promise will last forever. God makes the promise then that that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, that's how numerous and, and expansive this blessing will be to you and your descendants. And so in verse 17, God gives him the command, go, walk the length and the breadth of the land. See the extent of the promise that's given to you. Abram is trusting that what God has promised will be made true, walking the land. He has true faith, which is contrary to the way that you and I often describe faith. 
Maybe Mark Twain captures the American definition of faith clearly. Mark Twain says that faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. It's, it's sort of kind of crossing your fingers and hoping, but you kind of deep down think it's probably not true. So that maybe is the colloquial definition, and Twain captures it well for us. But that's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is hearing God say, all of this is yours, and then walking the length and breadth of the land in faith and knowing my descendants will have this land forever. Faith is a confidence that what God has said really is true. It's not a a blind wishing. It's not even a, a fooling of yourself like Twain would want us to think. True faith is trusting the promises of God. And so Abram responds in verse 18 by living in the land that God has promised, building an altar in worship to the Lord. But as we turn to chapter 14, and I, I skipped part of it, partly because as, even as you heard me read those lists of the names of the nine kings that are at war with each other, they're, they're, it's, it lists and reads almost like you, you walked into an, an, ancient, an ancient king's throne room, and one of his, his trusted advisors is reading the list of the great victories that have taken place. It reads like ancient history. The names make sense, even if we can't yet, by archaeology identify each of the cities listed here. And we have the kings that are there around the Dead Sea. One, one commentator describes them so that he doesn't have to keep repeating their names throughout the chapter. He calls them the Dead Sea Kings, which if you're looking for a name for a punk rock band, I think that one's pretty good. The Dead Sea Kings, that would work. But these, these kings are, are, are men that rule small little city-states there around the, the southern part of the, the Dead Sea. They have springs of water which, which feed, feed their lands. And yet, they are small little kings. Even though there are five of them, they're five against four. This isn't pick up basketball. If the four armies that come from the east are four armies of much greater size and power, armies that who for the last dozen years have exacted tribute from these kings, then it's not really a fair fight. And so the Dead Sea kings rebel. They try and throw off the shackles of, the, of these foreign kings. And the, even just as you, as you read the whole chapter, the title king or the description of a king is used 24 times in those verses, showing us that, that these men, these powerful men in the ancient world, are really nothing at all. Because it begins to highlight for us the importance of Abram and his response. And so the four kings, they they are seized, they are defeated on the battlefield. And Abram comes up then with a rescue mission. Look at chapter 14, verse 13. One who escaped from the battle came and reports this to Abram. No, Abram is not living likely still here near the, the place where the battle is taken because we last saw him in Hebron. He is much further to the west in the land of the promise that God has made to him. But a uh, man escapes and comes to Abram. The first time he's called the Hebrew, this designation for Abram and a, a descendant of Noah, one who is called by God. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshel and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. And Abram 
comes up with a plan, and he has 318 trained men, which is actually a significant force for a wandering farmer and herdsman. But 318 men is not really enough to defeat the four great kings that have come from the east, unless they use a different set of tactics or unless they have someone else fighting on their side. And so like an insurgent force, a tactical squad, they, they attack by night. He rescues everyone who has been taken. Lot, all the family members of Lot, all of his possessions are restored. Abram has succeeded. Abram, who at this point could have, could have shrugged his shoulders and said, Lot stood there looking out at the vast plains and thought, you know what, that looks better than the land of the promise. I'll go there. Lot, who is not only living near the springs of Sodom, but has moved into the city of Sodom. Avoiding the clear warnings of God. Now, the destruction of Sodom won't come for us until the new year in chapter 19. But, but the, the, the impending doom is already there because we've seen the warnings in chapter 13. The sin was obvious and visible, and yet Lot has wandered his way in. He climbed up to the roof for a good view, found an unlocked door, and walked in, and now he's fallen and hurt himself and is trapped. Surely, Abram could have said, this battle would be impossible to win. The chance of, of chasing down the, those great armies and rescuing Lot is slim. And after all, he's getting what he deserves. He made the bed, let him lie in it. That's what Abram could have said. And yet Abram shows us his faith in God. He becomes the hero in this story. And thankfully, in the Bible, God doesn't wait until people deserve to be rescued. See, the, part of the reason I, I think I like those stories of criminals doing the dumbest things is because I think to myself, I'm not that dumb. And, and all of you can think that too. You can read the stories of the dumbest criminals and think, I'm not that bad. And yet when it comes to my moral character, I might not be stupid enough to climb up onto the roof and fall down a hole in the wall. But when it comes to my moral obedience to God's commands, I really am dumber than that. Because I see what the world offers like Lot and I, well, I'll just move a little bit closer. I, I won't actually step across the line and actually sin. I'll just get right up to the edge of that line. Well, then it's easy to slide myself across that line. See, the reason that you and I need the foolishness of Lot, the, the rescue of Abram, even for the fool, is because you and I are the fool. The ones who have sinned against God, the ones who have failed. And thankfully, God doesn't wait until we kind of clean ourselves up and deserve a rescue. No, what does the Bible tell us? While we were still sinners. While we were sinners. Rebellion against God. Jesus Christ died for us. See, that's the promise that God rescues those who respond, that God rescues us even before we respond, and that his rescue brings us to a place of faith. Now, Abram, the great hero in this story, returns from defeating the four kings from the east, and he's met by 
by two surprising people. First, the king of Sodom, because he was just defeated in battle, and, and why is he still here? Why is he hanging around? And so we, we read in verse 17, after Abram returned from de- defeating Ketolomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. See, we're no longer down near where the battle had taken place. We're up into the promised land, into the land that will be given to Abram and his descendants forever. But the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram. And, and we actually don't hear what he says until verse 21. So look there, chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, in some sense, this is a fairly generous offer from the king of Sodom. He's letting, he's letting Abram, because he was the one who won the battle, keep all of the spoils of the battle. But he doesn't even, he, he can't even bring himself to say, hey, thanks. Thanks for going and rescuing all the people of my city who I was unable to protect. Thanks for gaining some sort of victory out of what would have been complete defeat for me. No, he just kind of throws this deal out. But Abram will have nothing to do with it. Abram wants nothing from the king of Sodom. Lot has willingly allied himself by moving into Sodom, but but Abram recognizes Sodom is outside the promised land. The, 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 The way the people live in Sodom does not honor God, and so Abram wants nothing to do with it, which is a big step forward from where we were in chapter 12 when Abram was willing to to give away his wife in order to get riches. And here he will take nothing from the foreign king. So Abram has repented, came to God in worship in chapter 13, and now he follows God in obedience here. He wants to give no honor to this pagan king. And so it's a surprise that the king of Sodom is still in the story, but Then we meet another king, a king who wasn't even part of the battle that had taken place, a tenth king introduced to us in this chapter. Look at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Not merely bread and water to feed the weary troops, but bread and wine. A banquet feast, a feast fit for a king. And we've seen that title king used over and over again in this chapter, and yet Abram is the one honored by this king. And then we're given this, this surprising detail in verse 18, that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, was a priest of God most high. He's a priest of God. And we don't know how it began, how it started, but he's received revelation from God himself. He worships God. Up until this point, this is the first time a priest has been introduced in history. Abram had served, yes, as the one who, who built an altar, who led his family in worship. He was the priest in his own household. But now we have a man designated by title as a priest of God most high. And then fulfilling the promises that God had made back in chapter 12, that everyone who blesses Abram will be blessed by God. We now have a priest of God blessing Abram, bringing blessing upon him. Look at verse 19. Melchizedek blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. It's a blessing given to Abram by the true God. And it's clear that, that Abram understands that, that we're, not, we're not slipping into some kind of pagan worship and worshiping Baal or another foreign god. No, we're worshiping the true God, Yahweh himself, 
the creator of heaven and earth, God most high. God blesses Abram through this priest. Now, if we were reading this in any other form of literature, we might have, we might have thought that the way this story should have been told is, yes, there's this great rescue in this battle plan, but that should be the climax of the story when Abram wins the battle. But the climax of this story isn't Abram's victory. Look at verse 20. The blessing of Melchizedek is not about Abram's victory, but about God's victory using Abram. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. See, the king of Salem understands that a rescue attempt by an army of 318 is fairly impressive. But it wasn't their battle plans that won the victory. It was God himself who delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. The blessing of God comes to Abram. God himself is blessed by this priest. And then look at the end of verse 20. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He gives a tithe to this priest, to the Lord, dedicating the the victory to God himself. It's a response of faith and obedience. Now, Melchizedek disappears from the story of Genesis. He makes this quick appearance here. He's mentioned once in the the Psalms, but, but he doesn't make an appearance again until the New Testament. So let's turn to the book of Hebrews. So all the way toward the back of your Bible, and again, if, if you're new to, to using your Bible, you can, can ask somebody, just, just look down the pew and ask somebody to, to help you find it. We're, gonna, we're turning to, to Hebrews chapter 7. You can find this on page 1187 if you're using one of the red Bibles that's there in the pew rack. Hebrews chapter 7, page 1187. See, the, the author of the Hebrews makes this big argument throughout the book that Jesus is greater than any of the the ways in which God has revealed himself before, greater than the the priests of the Old Testament, greater than the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, greater even than the angels or Moses. Jesus is the, the great king, the great priest who has come. And here in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, we're just going to look at chapter 7, we see Jesus compared to this enigmatic character from Genesis 14, Melchizedek. He makes an appearance again. The rescue you and I need comes through another priest king. Jesus is a priest, not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So so listen, I'm going to read Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 10. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the, from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. I mean, that's just if you break the name in parts, Melchi is my king, Zedek is righteousness, my king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. 
Do you see the argument that the, the author to the Hebrews is making? With, with biblical insight, with spiritual understanding, he, he's explaining to us where this Melchizedek has come from. Why does he appear on the stage? He doesn't have a genealogy. He can't trace his roots through, through Levi. He's not a descendant of Abram. And yet he is a king who reign, or a priest whose, whose rule, whose ministry lasts forever. That's what we're meant to understand, that, that Jesus' priesthood is a priesthood that lasts forever. Forever. It's not based on an ancestry or genealogy, but on God's appointment. That God has declared Melchizedek to be a priest. God has declared Jesus to be a priest. Melchizedek's priesthood lasts forever. Jesus' priesthood lasts forever. And he, Jesus, is then superior to anyone else the Old Testament has given us. Because the analogy is there. Think about how great Melchizedek was. Remember last week we talked about who is the greatest of the, of the Old Testament heroes. Abraham has to be on your short list of the men of faith, the heroes of God in the Scriptures. And yet, who is even greater than Abram? The one to whom Abram gives a tenth. Abram recognizes the greatness of the priest who stands in front of him because he has been appointed by God. And so he gives his life, his wealth to him. See, Jesus is the great high priest, the one who has come, like Melchizedek, appointed by God to, to last a ministry that will last forever. He is one who is superior even to the priests of the Old Testament. He is the one who comes to rescue us. And the author of Hebrews will, will continue to build this argument in chapter 7, but, but look at the end of the chapter. At Hebrews 7, verse 26, there we read about our great high priest, Jesus. Verse 26, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed his, for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Genesis 14, yes, gives us Abram as a hero, but it is not meant to point us to Abram's victory. It points us in the blessing of Melchizedek to the victory of God. It points us in the ministry of Melchizedek to, the, to Jesus, the priest who would come to give his life for us. And so what's being asked of us? A response of faith, even in the face of what looks like overwhelming, uncontainable circumstances. Do you trust that when God says he is for you, he is with you, he is telling you the truth? What's asked of us to give our lives, to devote our resources? I mean, that's why we, we, we include our offering as part of a worship service. That giving God a tenth of what we have just starts to train our hearts that he is the one who is really in control. He is the true king who demands our lives. So we respond by faith and trusting his promises. We respond in gratitude, pouring out our lives to him, giving him our tithes. Because Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus has won the victory. Our enemies of sin and death are defeated by our true king, the priest who gave his life for us. 